Hello, and welcome back to the Rewatch Rewind, the podcast where I count down my top 40 most rewatched movies. My name is Jane, and today I will be talking about number 33 on my list, Columbia Pictures' 1938 romantic comedy Holiday, directed by George Cukor, written by Donald Ogden Stewart and Sidney Buckman, adapted from the play by Philip Barry, and starring Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. Johnny Case, Cary Grant, has just returned home to New York City from a trip to Lake Placid, where he met, fell in love with, and got engaged to Julia Seaton, Doris Nolan. When he shows up at the address she gave him, he is surprised to find that it's a giant mansion and that she lives there with her family, whom she previously neglected to mention is extremely wealthy. Both her lively sister Linda, Catherine Hepburn, and her depressed alcoholic brother Ned, Lou Ayres, immediately approve of Johnny. Her father, banker Edward Seaton, Henry Colker, is initially shocked that his daughter is engaged to someone he's never heard of, but he is ultimately won over by Johnny's impressive work history. However, when Johnny reveals his plans to quit working for a while to seek the meaning of life, both Edward and Julia are appalled, while Linda enthusiastically approves, and it becomes apparent that Johnny is engaged to the wrong sister. There are many things I love about this movie, but the main reason it's on this list is because of who stars in it. If you've listened to the Mary Poppins episode, you may recall me saying that Julie Andrews is one of four actors to appear in at least four of my top 40 movies. Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn are two of the others. Katherine Hepburn will be making a total of five appearances, and Cary Grant will be making ten. So if you really hate him, you're probably not going to like much of the rest of this podcast. I don't exactly remember why or how he became my number one fave, and it's kind of a chicken or egg situation. Do I love so many of his films because he's in them, or do I love him because he's in so many of my favorite films? I have no idea, and at this point it doesn't really matter. I just know that I love watching him on screen, somehow both suave and goofy simultaneously, and listening to that unique voice that truly mastered the fake transatlantic accent like none other. And I also know that he was a very convenient explanation for why I had no interest in dating anyone in my teens or twenties. There just aren't any men out there like Cary Grant, I'd lament, which was true, but the implication that I wanted there to be was misleading, though even I didn't understand that for a very long time. There were a few other old Hollywood actors I would sometimes also claim to find attractive, using the same excuse that nobody in real life was like them. I was aware that it was weird to only have crushes on movie stars who were old enough to be my great-grandparents, but that still felt less weird than admitting the truth. I didn't understand what a crush was and I was too scared to ask since everyone else seemed to instinctively know. It wasn't until I was around 30 that I finally asked myself, if I met a Cary Grant clone who was my age, with his exact appearance and mannerisms and voice, without his traumatic childhood, would I want to date him? Or sleep with him? And I had to admit that the answer was no. What I feel for Cary Grant is appreciation for his work and perhaps some aesthetic attraction, but nothing romantic or sexual. He's still my number one fave, and I still celebrate his birthday every year with a multi-day marathon of his work, which explains why so many of his movies made it into my top 40. Since Katherine Hepburn is another actor whose birthday I celebrate every year, although not quite as enthusiastically, and Holiday is also a perfect New Year's Eve movie, I have many occasions to revisit this one. 
I can't remember if I'd seen it before I started keeping track, but I watched it once in 2003, once in 2006, once in 2008, once in 2009, once in 2011, twice in 2012, once in 2014, once in 2016, twice in 2018, twice in 2019, and once in each year since. One viewing in particular stands out to me. It was January of 2012. I was in college and I had a lot of intense family stuff going on, and then a snowstorm hit on a Tuesday night, which happened to be the night before Cary Grant's birthday. Classes ended up getting canceled for the rest of the week, and I used that time almost exclusively to consume Cary Grant movies. On his actual birthday, I managed to convince some friends to watch one with me, so I went to one of their dorm rooms and we ended up watching Holiday. I want to say that overall it was a good time and most of them really enjoyed it, but I honestly don't remember for sure. What I do remember is that there was one person in that group of friends who didn't want to join us, declaring that she refused to watch any movie made before 1990, but then kept coming into the room after we started the movie to make comments like, Ugh, I can't believe you're watching this. Ew, it's in black and white, and such. I should have just let it go. After all, it was her loss to miss out on great movies due to some arbitrary date cutoff. But I got very upset about it. The disrespect! On Cary Grant's birthday of all days! I didn't really know that person very well, and we haven't kept in touch, but I hope she has forgiven and long forgotten any angry comments I may have directed toward her that day. To a certain extent, I understand her attitude. Old movies portray outdated ideas and ways of living that can feel strange and even offensive to watch. But they also tell us a lot about the history of our society. Holiday, in particular, still feels extremely relevant. It's set during the Great Depression, a time when there were a few very rich people and many very poor people, which sounds a lot like today. It's about a wealthy family with one child who takes their privilege for granted, one child who is dissatisfied and abuses substances to cope, and one child who actively tries to rebel against the idea that money makes their family inherently superior. And when the entitled head of the family and the child who is most like him hear about a working-class person who has saved up enough money to spend some time enjoying himself instead of working, they scoff at that idea. Doesn't that sound like it could take place right now? Modern audiences might find the lack of action in this movie a bit tedious. It's very apparent that it was based on a play, as it's dialogue-heavy and almost the entire movie takes place in a few areas of the Seton house. But the wittiness of the lines and the punch of their delivery more than make up for the lack of action, at least in my opinion. I do wish the movie started a little earlier in the story, so that we got to see Johnny and Julia at Lake Placid. Apparently, scenes were actually filmed for this, but George Cuker, the director, didn't like the footage and decided to cut it all. Julia just seems so completely wrong for Johnny in every way that I really want to see how she behaved when they first met to convince him otherwise. From the very first scene when Johnny goes to their house, it is clear that Julia neither shares nor appreciates Johnny's sense of humor, while Linda is swapping jokes with him as soon as they meet. I don't necessarily think that means Johnny and Linda need to get together, although of course they will because it's a rom-com and they're the stars, but I do feel like it demonstrates that Johnny and Julia would not have had a functional marriage. I've never been able to understand what he saw in her, although a possible explanation is vaguely addressed by her brother Ned's perceptive line, spoken to their sister Linda. You know, most people, including Johnny and yourself, make a big mistake about Julia. They're taken in by her looks. At bottom, she's a very dull girl, and the life she pictures for herself is the life she belongs in. 
In other words, Johnny saw a beautiful woman and imposed his ideals onto her. When he finally learns that the woman he's attracted to and believes he's in love with neither shares nor supports his point of view on life, he has to decide how much of himself he's willing to compromise. It would have been so easy to let this story deteriorate into a two sisters fighting over the same man love triangle scenario, but it doesn't. Linda has no desire to interfere with Johnny and Julia's relationship, even when she is finally able to admit to herself and Ned that she's fallen for Johnny. Linda actively tries to repair the rift that forms between Johnny and Julia when they discover they have different values. It's only after Julia tells her that she doesn't care about Johnny and is relieved that he's decided to leave on his holiday without her that Linda decides to go with him. As Ned observed, Linda, like Johnny, has always imposed her own values on Julia, so it takes her just as long as it takes Johnny to realize that he and Julia are completely unsuited for each other. And I love the way that's portrayed. Too often, sacrificing other relationships for the sake of romantic love is glorified, but Linda is willing to sacrifice romance when she thinks pursuing it would hurt her sister, which I appreciate. There is a part of me that would like to see a version where Linda and Johnny realize that their love is actually platonic and decide to go on an adventure as friends, and who knows, that could happen. The movie ends with them kissing, but afterwards they might decide they don't feel those kinds of feelings for each other and it was just matonormativity convincing them they did. But that feels like a major stretch. It does seem clear that if they do get married, theirs would not be a particularly conventional marriage, especially for the time, so they're definitely still rebelling against some societal norms. That's really what this movie is about, questioning the things that society tells you should be important. American capitalist society says pile up as much money as you can, and if it's not much, you're doing something wrong. Johnny Case says, wait a minute, that can't be all there is, and decides to find different goals for himself. But the movie also portrays how difficult it is to break away from the norms. Ned desperately wants to get away, but his father has a very tight hold on him and won't let him out of the banking business that Ned despises, so he drinks excessively because he sees no other way out. Linda finds it a little easier to question and rebel against things, but is rarely taken seriously by her father and sister, who patronizingly dismiss her ideas as silly little trifles and assume that she, along with everyone else who is being difficult in their eyes, will come around eventually. We get the impression that this is a frequent source of tension in the household, but the main example in the movie is when Linda desperately wants to throw a fun, intimate little New Year's Eve party to celebrate Johnny and Julia's engagement, but Mr. Seton insists on throwing an enormous fancy gala instead. Linda protests by staying in the small playroom, where she is joined by Ned along with Johnny's friends Nick and Susan Potter, played by the wonderful character actors Edward Everett Horton and Jean Dixon, who feel incredibly out of place at the main party. It's a delightful scene that contrasts the coziness and warmth of the playroom with the stiffness and formality of the rest of the house. At this point, Johnny has started to conform to the proper life Julia wants for him, and he initially enters the playroom to convince Linda to be reasonable and join the big party to keep from embarrassing the family. But he soon realizes that the smaller party is much more his style, and it's soon after that when he learns that an important deal has come through which has made him enough money to quit his job, why an important business deal would be going through at 11.45 p.m. on New Year's Eve has never made sense to me, but oh well. And that's when he tells Julia and Mr. Seaton about his holiday plans, and they flip out because he's challenging the status quo. Eventually, after taking some time to clear his head, Johnny tells them he's willing to compromise and try the life Julia wants, 
agreeing to work for Mr. Seaton's company for a year or so and then go on holiday if he still wants to. Julia and Mr. Seaton are delighted, making it clear that they believe that once he starts this life, he'll change his mind completely and give up on what they view as his foolish fancy. But traveling to find the meaning of life is even more important to Johnny than the party was to Linda, and he decides he can't compromise. He has to live his life the way he chooses, even if most people think it's foolish. And that message still feels incredibly profound and necessary today. I think that's the main reason this movie has resonated with me so much. As someone who has always felt like the things I find important are often dismissed as trivial by mainstream society, while the things mainstream society deems important have never made much sense to me, it feels incredibly validating and encouraging for a Cary Grant character to confidently declare that he doesn't want the life he's supposed to want, and ultimately decide not to back down even when people he cares about just as confidently scoff and tell him he's wrong. Not that I would ever have the courage or self-assurance to just drop everything and leave on a trip with no plan other than find the meaning of life. That sounds terrifying. But when you're airways, and I imagine this is similar for other queer identities as well, you're constantly bombarded with the message that the correct life path is something that doesn't feel right, and that the life you do want is not only incorrect, but shameful. Of course, a movie made in 1938 would never have dreamed of addressing LGBTQIA issues directly, but somehow, even with its straight romances, Holiday almost feels queer. That might be taking things too far, but the film is certainly about living as your true and authentic self and not letting anyone convince you to be someone you're not for the sake of respectability, which feels like basically the same thing as saying queer rights, at least to me. Much as I love the message of the story, I do want to emphasize that ultimately this is a comedy, and a big part of its appeal is just getting to see Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn being silly together. The way their characters meet and instantly establish an easy rapport feels so natural and authentic. Whether they're disagreeing about the difference between goat and sheep noises, trying to invent a fancy pedigree for Johnny, or actually being real with each other, they are such a delight to watch. Nick and Susan Potter are also very fun characters, and their friendship with Johnny, and later Linda, is beautifully portrayed. I would love to see a sequel of the four of them traveling the world together. However, that was not to be, partly because, despite receiving critical acclaim, this movie was a box office failure. It's been speculated that perhaps Great Depression audiences who would have done anything to find jobs did not sympathize with Johnny's plans to quit his. At the time, Katherine Hepburn was deemed box office poison because audiences thought she was past her prime, so that didn't help either. After this movie, Hepburn left Hollywood for Broadway, where she starred in a new play that Philip Berry, who also wrote the play this movie was based on, had written specifically for her, which she then took back to Hollywood and used to turn her career around, but more on that in a future episode. A few more fun facts about Holiday that I need to share. In the original Broadway production of the play, Katherine Hepburn understudied the role of Linda, and she performed a scene from the play in her first screen test, which led to her first film. The role of Nick Potter was originally played on Broadway by Donald Ogden Stewart, who co-wrote this screenplay, and then was played by Edward Everett Horton in both a 1930 film adaptation and this 1938 remake. This was the final feature film appearance of Jean Dixon, who played Susan Potter, although she continued to act on stage and television, and she will be making another appearance on this podcast for an earlier film. And finally, this movie provided Cary Grant an opportunity to show off the tumbling skills he learned while touring with an acrobatic troupe as a teenager, 
as Johnny likes to use acrobatics to calm himself when he's nervous. It kind of looks to me like at one point they may have used a stunt double, but for most of the flips you can clearly see his face, and I think it's so cool that he was able to do at least most of his own stunts. What a performer. Thank you for listening to me chat about another of my most rewatched movies. Be sure to subscribe or follow for more, and leave a rating or review to let me know how you're enjoying this project. Next week, I will be joined by another guest, and as always, I will leave you with a quote from the movie we'll be discussing then. Yeah, he was here, but he put an egg in his shoe and beat it.